apologize that we got COVID is COVID is a motherfucker. Um, I'm still not completely uh, good, but I was good enough to do a pod this week and um, good enough to do a column. So Oswald, it's been a really rough period for me. I, I mean, some of it chosen the hip surgery, <laughs> the colonoscopy, just to fill in the one week I had free before I got COVID. Uh, so it goes on and on and on. But hey, I'm going to be fine. And I, I thank God for the vaccines. And thank God for Paxlovid, which my doctor was able to get for me. Um, and it's just the main effect at this point is 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 real exhaustion. Um, it just kind of creeps up on you. You're doing fine. And then you just kind of pass out. Um, I'm sure those of you who've been through this yourselves will understand, although I'm grateful to have a pretty mild case and grateful that my booster really helped me. I'm, excuse me, my lungs are a little off already. Anyway, back to today. And um, we have Barry Weiss. I found out that she likes to be called Barry, not Barry. And as you all know, we've been engaged in a vast international conspiracy for years now, the two of us, actually, obviously not at all. I've always loved her and admired her. And any plucky young Jewish lesbian of the New York Times will always have my moral support and affection. She was an op-ed editor at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times before leaving to create her own op-ed page on Substack, which is called Common Sense. It's fantastic. Always lively. Nellie Bowles, her wife's uh, Friday missives, TJF, are always fantastic. And she's also written How to Fight Anti-Semitism and has been a passionate defender of the state of Israel. We talked mainly about the history of gay rights, the new factor of trans rights, whether there are conflicts, how the movement is going, and we did it as a joint podcast. And so uh, we'll start the beginning of her conversation where she actually interrogates me a little bit. I hope you enjoy. It was a really fun conversation. I think it gets to some of the deeper conflicts that are now out there between trans and gay rights, between gender ideology and biology, and between liberalism and illiberalism and how we navigate between those two. So enjoy. So Recently, the author, our friend, fellow gay rights activist, Jonathan Rausch, published an article where he said, until fairly recently, like most gay Americans, I've seen the trans movement as an extension of our own. I believe trans people deserve equality in all meaningful respects. This notion, right, of seeing the trans movement as an extension of the gay rights movement has changed, right? It's really something that's up for debate. And I know you feel the same way, as do many people who took part in the fight for gay equality and for same-sex marriage. So I want to start by asking, why? What makes this movement, which some people call gender ideology, but sort of resists being categorized, what makes it different? Well, if you look at what I was arguing, what many of us were arguing on gay questions, a matter of civil rights, the right to marry, the right to be in the military, the right to, at some point, be protected by broad anti-discrimination laws. Those are our understanding of civil rights. Well, the truth is, that's all done. The Bostock decision, and it kind of blows my mind that I've never heard a trans activist hail the Bostock decision. I've never seen them boast about it. I've, I don't hear it front and center. The Bostock decision embedded the rights of trans people in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. 
There are some minor things they could probably improve on it. But as a core reality, it's over. The civil rights question is done. Uh, so meaning the question, you can't be fired. Meaning you, you can't, can't be fired from your job because you're trans, et cetera. And you can marry who you want. And you can, and thank God, after Trump, you can also serve in the military. All of the core issues that gay people fought for are already won for trans people as well. It was only mm -hmm. recent. So you can see why, in fact, because broadly speaking, the question of people having some behaving in ways that is not usually associated with their sex, namely being attracted to someone of the same sex or a very different experience, feeling that you're a different sex than you present as, uh, or than your body tells, you, tells us you are, those have, have a sort of rough similarity on the outside. And certainly trans people definitely sought refuge among gay people too, although there are some, there is a lot of bullshit around that too. Stonewall, for example, was very not trans friendly. And there's always been some tension between gay men and trans women too on that front. But nonetheless, broadly speaking, agreement. Because again, I, the idea of being against trans rights is, appalls me. I think it's a, a genuine identity that is people do not have control over. I think that they absolutely have a right to be who they want to be and to do what they want with their own bodies as adults and to, and to organize and, and live freely and openly. But subsequently, we realize that in fact, what's been driving this is not a liberal civil rights question because that's been resolved. It's a very illiberal idea that we are going to use trans people as a way to detonate the sex binary altogether. So we can unwind, unwind sex differences, unwind the differences between men and women because part of the project of the Foucaultian left is to deconstruct everything to maximize human freedom. So deconstruct the nuclear family, deconstruct marriage, deconstruct the military, don't join them. This tension was always, and I think what's happened is that as those of us basically succeeded in the gay rights movements, we didn't think there was anything more to do. We went on with our lives. But that just leaves some of these causes able to be cannibalized and taken over by extremists. And that's what has happened, I think. And part of it is saying, and this is the core issue at hand, it's not about do you support trans rights. It's not. I support them up the wazoo, so to speak. It is a question of whether we are able to define reality, whether mm. biology actually is an important issue in your sex. Now, this, this wouldn't have been thought controversial 10 minutes ago. Quite obviously, your biology determines your sex. And when you really push some of these activists, they will almost concede that. But what they want to say is that sex is a choice. And they do that by conflating sex with gender and then unraveling every legal and constitutional means to distinguish between men and women as biologically different people. And that is a totally different debate than trans rights. That's a question about reality. That's a question about whether you are a postmodernist interested in merely in the invention of identities or whether you are a liberal that wants to append rights to individuals and understand those individuals as being partly biological beings. That's the conflict. I think a lot of people who are just straight, normie people going about their day and are like, LGBTQA+, it's one thing. How are you sitting there 
Sully saying that they're separate, right? What makes the LGB different from the TQ? Well, in a, here's a very fundamental way. The challenge for a gay kid, let's say a gay boy, is to own his own sex, to believe that the fact that he's in love with other boys does not make him any less of a boy. It's incredibly important. A trans child has to be actually compelled by a desire to disown their own sex, become something else entirely. Those are two radically different psyches and psychological formations. They really are. And a lot of gay boys and lesbian girls often have, because you will often have a range of gender expression, let's put it that way. Little boys will play with dolls sometimes. They will not be so much into rough and tumble sports, although some gay boys are. And again, they, they need to be understood as well. There are plenty of gay boys that are absolutely great at sports and, and, and hide there in, in their machismo, as it were. But others mm-hmm. have slightly what you would call gender non-conforming. I hate these words, but it basically means you're not a stereotypical boy or a stereotypical girl. And they're being told, you know, maybe that makes you actually not gay, but trans. And of those kids that feel this way and have this gender non-conforming capacity and, and, and predilection, almost all turn out to be gay in adulthood. So the question simply is, uh, in general, you'd say, well, let them all sort it out. Let them grow up and figure out who they are and who cares. But when there is a movement coming in to say, if you are not stereotypically acting as a girl or a boy, you could be trans. And you're telling people this at the age of three, four, and five. You're telling kids at a very impressionable age all sorts of incredibly confusing things that are going to particularly, it seems to me, destabilize a gay boy or gay girl's psyche. So that is the conflict. And it's always been a conflict. And, One of the things... Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and if we just had the civil rights movement... Trans people would already have civil rights. We'd be fine. But we don't. We, 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 we have something else, a much more pernicious product of critical gender theory, critical queer theory, which really doesn't believe in biology at all, believes biology itself is a function of white supremacist culture, that really believes the sex binary itself is a function of white supremacist culture, that previous civilizations didn't have it, which is, of course, untrue. And because but it's they coming re- to us, but it's smuggling itself in under the guise and in the language of the next, you know, the next civil rights movement. Well, and we I think should in, be inclusive. That is why it, well, that, but that is why I think it is, it will sound maybe strange to certain people who don't follow this debate mm. to suggest that it's not just an extension of the kind of progress that you have devoted so much of your life to fighting for. Well, here's the thing. If sex is replaced by gender, and gender is chosen, mm-hmm. then what happens to homosexuality itself? What happens is it disappears. It becomes being homogendered, which is how they're now rewording it, which means you're just attracted to this sort of concept of masculinity. And if homosexuality is the attraction ends- to the same sex, you get rid of sex, turn it into gender, then it's perfectly possible for for a gay person to be gay and have sex with a woman as an expression of gayness. No, I'm not kidding. And in no, fact, I, if, you, I, I if, you, not. And if you then say, I'm only attracted to men with dicks, to put it bluntly, in other words, to men, 
they'll say you're a bigot, a bigot. So gay men are being told. It's very, it's, it's, yeah, it's very, very strange because this claims to be a movement that is about radical inclusion and progress. But in my experience, it is solidifying, it is reifying some of the most sort of retrograde ideas that there are about gender and in in a lot of my experience, especially about women, that to be a woman means to be submissive, that to be a woman means that you wear heels and get a blowout and, you know, a facelift or whatever the most extreme stereotype is, that rather than the progressive argument being you're a girl and you're a tomboy, great. You're just as much a girl as the one who likes to play with Barbies. It's instead saying, if you're a tomboy, well, maybe you need a mastectomy. Let me tell maybe you you're little, actually a boy inside. A little story from my childhood. I've told this before, but forgive me. I was at my grandmother's and my grandparents for Christmas. I was like eight. My brother was four. I was sitting around look, reading a book. My brother was jamming a truck, toy truck up against the, the wall, making a dent into the... So, and my grandmother looked at my mother and looked at us two boys and looked at my brother and said, well, at least now you have a real boy. And that's what a gay boy hears all the time. Back home in the car, my mother said to my dad, what was your mother talking about? What do you mean he's not a real boy? What, what, do you mean... Do you mean do you mean you think it might be blah, blah, blah? And I'm listening in the back because my mother has no filter mechanism. And my dad said, well, I don't know. All I can tell you is he's 100% male. And I can't tell you what that meant to me. To be affirmed as a boy, however I wanted to express that. Whether it be painting flowers, whether it be writing poetry, translating Latin, or playing rugby. They were all manifestations of being a boy. And when teachers are telling me when I'm eight years old, you know, you could be a girl, actually, because you like poetry and you seem to be too attached to your books and you're not into rugby. What would that do to my self-esteem? And if that could lead to my taking irreversible decisions about my body, then that's an incredibly dangerous thing to do for a child. And... That's what scares me. I wouldn't mind at all if this weren't for some children a dead end in, before they even hit puberty. When I say a dead end, I don't mean, I mean a, a place where they can never get back to. So, for example, if you are a prepubescent boy and they diagnose you as trans or you diagnose yourself as trans or you keep insisting you're a girl and they decide to put you on puberty blockers and then in due course they put you on cross-sex hormones so the, to turn you into a woman before the testosterone of your natural puberty would hit you, you get the estrogen. Well, one of the side effects of this is that is the boy will never develop genitals as a man yeah. with all the sensitivity. And that means they do not have material to turn into a clitoris. So this boy will not only be sterilized his whole life, he will never experience an orgasm as a woman. Now, I don't know how you explain to a nine-year-old you'll never have an orgasm when they don't even know what an orgasm is. I uh, want to... And, and that's just... I, now, maybe that is a complete outlier, right? Maybe that's the most extreme case. And if I could be totally reassured that this is happening only to a few under very careful conditions, people who, kids who genuinely, absolutely are trans and need this, 
I would be fine. I, I mean, I, I'd leave it to the parents and the doctors. And I, in general, that's my impression. But when this becomes a craze, when it becomes some sort of ideological achievement to transition children, when they're bragging about it, and when we have no real restraints on it, so far as we could see until recently in, these, in red state laws, and when, in fact, the Biden administration is affirming the, 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 the notion that you should immediately move trans kids, people, gender dysphoric kids, onto the gender-affirming path, notice that what gender-affirming actually means is sex change. And again, yeah. the, word, the way they use words, if you simply put in all the stories about the, about uh, Sex pediatric, change for kids. If you just said sex change for kids, for, under, for people below puberty, basically 98% of the country would say, what? But when you say gender affirming oh. care, and then when you call it just health care, we're going to deny health care to trans kids. Or are we going to stop giving them penicillin? I mean, the sheer lies about this, <laughs> you know, it, I, it, it's I wanna... staggering. I want to have a deeper conversation about the deeply complicated, disturbing sometimes issue of kids and medicalization in a minute. Before we do that, I want to go back to something else that Jonathan Rauch wrote in that essay, because I thought it was sort of profound. You talked about how Many of the arguments that were once made against the gay rights movement are now being made against trans rights activists. And here's what he wrote. Gays were supposedly redefining marriage. Trans people are supposedly redefining sex. We allegedly smeared all disagreement as homophobic. They allegedly smear all disagreement as transphobic. We were usurping democratic majorities, destroying privacy, defying nature, recruiting children and politicizing science. There, well, you get the idea. Seeing the many parallels, he writes, makes me humble about getting the trans issue wrong. I really admire that kind of intellectual humility, and I think it's worth us taking a beat and just sitting with that for a second. When you see that list from Rausch, is there any part of you that says, maybe I'm getting it wrong? Well, we have to distinguish, it seems to me, between several different issues. And one is, and you've got to focus on each one in particular. So the question is, what's the best thing for a trans kid or a gay kid? And how should we navigate that? The second thing is, what are the motivations of people who are opposing these, 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 these practices? Some of them, I think, are completely legitimate and need to be supported. I think it's a legitimate concern for a parent to say, you know, I don't want my three-year-old being told that you can be a boy or a girl or both or neither or something else entirely. I just don't think that's quite appropriate. And I'm quoting exactly from a book in the curriculum. However, then you get into this point where you're dealing with teachers teaching children, and suddenly the opposition comes in and starts deploying these ancient, ugly tropes about gays recruiting grooming. And that's where we're stuck, Barry. I mean, so we can oppose this, but if we do in our current polarized context, we're going to also be empowering some ugly shit. And that's always terrifying. And you certainly have to be, in, if you are a gay person and involved in this and trying to figure this out and, and not just ducking into tribal loyalty, you've got to call this stuff out. It seems to me early quickly and decisively and say, this is not the right way to do this. And I tried to do that with this. And I've been incredibly dis 
discouraged by people like Chris Rufo or Jim Lindsay, who've just jumped on this teachers raping kids or teachers teaching kids in order to seduce them, groomers, all the rest of it. And that stuff, you just realize, Jesus. So where do I go? I'm stuck between your, your, <laughs> your child who's acting in ways that are not exactly gender conforming is probably trans and we need to get, we need, we need to talk them into transitioning or we need to talk to them about these things or all teachers teaching any kids about homosexuality or gender identity are obviously attempting to rape them. And I don't mm -hmm. take either of those positions. I'm sorry. And, and at some point you'll be asked, you know, so whose side are you on? And I think it's the and job. And you basically get to choose, you get to choose the liberal left or, or the liberal right. That, that wants, yeah. And what do you choose? You choose your own position. <laughs> you, you Look, you're a writer. You're a thinker. You explain the case. Now, in, I was making the case for gay marriage in 2004. The Republican Party, Karl Rove, decided to use that issue to turn Ohio around. Very consciously. So I had to go to war with the Bush administration, which I did dutifully. But... That point is that, that these things will happen. But did I say, oh, forget it. Let's not stick to our guns on marriage. No, it is, this is regrettable. But if we keep our arguments straight, we'll get to some good resolution at some point. So, but morally speaking, you're also a moral actor. And so you have to feel conflict here. And with someone like DeSantis, it seems to me there's a, a couple of things. One is that he made a move to write this bill. The bill is not written anywhere near as well as it could be. It seems to open all sorts of doubts about how it could be abused and used, although we'll see in due course. But he won. We're talking here about what's been labeled the, well, the, parental, the rights parental rights in education, in education but has the left has called don't, don't say gay. But that's, I mean, the don't say gay thing, I don't even want to repeat that because it's just not true. It, it, it's about instructing children between the ages of three and eight in gender, gender identity and homosexuality, which in this case means queer theory, I'm afraid. So this, but he passed it, right? So now we can see whether there'll be lawsuits, what actually happens, et cetera, and so on. But if most people were asked, do you worry about, we're no longer teaching gender identity to eight-year-olds, they'd be like, I don't really care, but that sounds like a good idea. And that's what the polling kind of says. But then having won, he then goes after Disney and ups, ups the ante on the grooming rhetoric, just behaving like a thug, behaving like uh, Victor Orban or, or Donald Trump saying, I don't like this corporation because you disagree with me on this public policy, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make life difficult for you. That's not, certainly not conservatism as it's been properly understood. It's not classical liberalism. It's mm -hmm. culture war illiberalism. Now, I know... We are stuck in this position where we have to pick between one liberalism or the other. And there will be moments when we can't duck it. So we have to make a choice when we vote. But when we can articulate a third position, we should. In fact, if we do not, we're going to, we're going to lose our liberal democracy altogether. In my reading of it, there are obviously some people out there who are just straight up bigots against trans people in the way that there are just straight up bigots against gay people. They're grossed out by gays and they're equally grossed out or maybe more so to know that a woman in a dress might have a penis underneath. But when I see many of the people in public life that get labeled as anti-trans, including, of course, most famously J.K. Rowling, 
but lots of my lesbian heroes, including people like Julie Bindle or Kathleen Stock that was run out like a witch from the University of Sussex for suggesting that biology is real, you know, including us, frankly, you know, we're saying, no, no, we're not anti-trans. We believe that trans people deserve equal rights, dignity and respect. What we're saying, though, is that gender and sex aren't simply chosen identities, that there are meaningful differences between men and women. And those differences aren't simply social constructs created by a racist patriarchy to oppress anyone who isn't born white, cisgendered and male. And the frustrating thing to me is that that it's it's not even nuance that like huge distinction, because, of course, many of the people that get labeled anti-trans are themselves gay, gets completely lost. And all of those people who are saying, no, 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 equal rights, equal dignity, just acknowledge acknowledge that biology is real and that science is real. All of that gets sort of whitewashed with, nah, you're a bigot, you know, in the same way that arguing against defund the police gets you accused of being an apologist for systemic racism. Yeah. I used to say, and I wrote this in Virtue Normal all those years ago, that we've got to get past one side yelling pervert and the other side yelling bigot. Uh, because, it's, first of all, it's incredibly boring. And secondly, it's emotional, yes, and in a way that's not necessary. What I, what I worry about with someone like Joe Biden or Jill Biden or Jen Psaki or, is that they actually have never even dealt with the questions at hand. They've never even presented with the possibility that there could be a debate about this. And the mainstream media... Oh, what, but, until Sully, what's so, what's so strange about that is that so many other progressive countries, as you know... Countries like Norway and others that have gone down the path that America's currently on are now radically reversing course because the data simply isn't there that these kind of medical interventions, what has been framed as gender affirming care by the administration, actually makes a difference in the mental health outcomes of gender dysphoric children. You have to remember that in many ways there are no long term studies on some of this stuff yet. So in, to some extent, we're experimenting on children. Insofar as these experiments have continued on a large scale in Western European countries, there has been real pushback now from the leaders themselves, also here from trans surgeons and trans specialists who are alarmed at the sudden massive increase in particular teenage girls showing up wanting to become men. And this, is, this doesn't seem to be comport with historic standards or the possibility that there are people who've been trans who now feel more self-confident coming out, which be a wonderful thing. But this sudden onset in early teens, only among girls, mm -hmm. very weird statistically. You're just like, what's going on here? And it seems to me our first instinct should be first do no harm. And, mm -hmm. and the way that it's been set up as a, as a binary do you hate these kids or do you love them as opposed to do you to, want them to live or do you want them to, to die? die? I mean, I'd rather have, you know, I'd rather have a live girl than a dead boy, as they sometimes say. And I'm just like, that is that is certainly not the right context into in which to address the obvious mental health needs of a teenage girl or boy dealing with 
their own gender dysphoria, which can be a manifestation of a multiple number of causes and origins, whether that be domestic disturbance in their own household, whether it be autism on some level, whether it be depression, whether it be all sorts of things that have got into their heads, whether it be a social contagion, which can exist. What what concerns me is that let's just say we all love these kids. We just, who wants to misdiagnose a trans kid because we're being too expansive? Who wants to, to turn a gay kid to change their life in a way that they will in the future regret forever? We don't. We want to be careful. We really, really want to be careful when we are permanently changing the physical nature of people's bodies. And I also have just a deep sense, and maybe this is my Catholicism speaking, I don't know, but the body is, it, it, it's not something we can just re-engineer in a postmodern way. We don't, that somewhere underneath all this is some kind of rebellion against nature itself which I think is partly a function of our distance from natural law, from our distance from a sense of solid biology into this postmodern world where everything can be invented, mm. everything can be dismantled, everything can be recreated. And that's why you have to focus on the language also. I mean, here's, let me give you one thing that upsets me. And I, I probably, there's two little points here. One is individual gay people being called LGBTQ. Like, Pete Buttigieg said, you're LGBTQ, aren't you? He's like, yes. I'm like, no, you're not. You're a G. <laughs> you're a G. You can't be a T or an L. You can, these things are literally oxymorons. So why are, you, why are you using this ugly word when you could just say gay man, when, which actually has two vowels you can work with? And the answer is because they're what, deliberately changing language to enforce changes without debate like suddenly changing it from sex change to gender-affirming care. You don't think that matters? And when I listen to the ACLU or I listen to the Biden administration, I just hear this, this linguistic abuse constantly to propagandize people, hmm. not to actually air the issues involved, but to make any dissent indistinguishable from hatred. Again, this word hatred. If you ever meet a young kid who is dealing with gender dysphoria, the only, only moral position is compassion and empathy and support. And whether that kid is going to be gay or whether that kid is going to be trans, they're obviously... Now, being gay is not, I don't think, for most people, anything like as traumatizing as it is to be trans. And that's the other thing I think we need to be clear about. You know, you can talk about gay kids. They will be okay. They will, they will have scars because we'll always have scars because when you're a tiny minority when you're a kid it's always tough right so that's going to happen but they'll be all right the trouble with the trans kids is that if we intervene too soon they're not going to be all right and even if we don't they're not going to be all right this is a very difficult challenging experience and i loved you know the end of that dave Chappelle thing where the trans woman just simply said can you just acknowledge that this is a human experience? And we absolutely should. And compassion does not mean railroading people into some sort of ideological position. It does not mean prematurely rushing kids into transition. It means concern and love and care and support their whole lives because this is a struggle every day for a lot of trans people. There is no, most, many honest trans people will tell you, there's no sudden day when I wake up and everything is all right. And it's, it's tough. 
And the idea that those of us who are concerned about excess medicalization of trans children or concerned that we don't give up the idea of biological sex altogether because that will have repercussions in ways we don't fully understand and don't want, the idea that we somehow feel hatred or contempt for these children is just, it's so disgusting and untrue mm. that one doesn't even know how to counter it. And yet it is the most mm. common tactic you mm. hate. And, and the fact that you can't even begin to have an argument without being told you hate all trans people, you, you harbor hate, it's just, no, we don't. And if you see the world in that way, we're never going to have any kind of civil agreement or conversation. Hmm. One of the things that is, you know, it's one thing to sort of anecdotally know people who transition or parents that are dealing with kids that identify as trans. If you look at the data, though, it's just unbelievably striking. You know, in the past decade, the number of young people seeking treatment for gender dysphoria spiked by a thousand percent in the U.S. In the U.K., jumped by four thousand percent. The largest youth gender clinic in Los Angeles, where I now live, there were a thousand patients in 2019. In 2009, they saw about 80. Now, some people look at those numbers and they say, you know, just like with gayness, it's not that all of a sudden people turn gay. It's just now that they're now they're visible. It's just become safe to be out and be gay. And a lot of people who look at those numbers say those trans kids were here all along. They just now have permission to seek the care that they need. How do you respond to that argument? Some of it's true. It's one thing I would say, there's, there's a kernel of truth there. There's no question that it must be easier for a trans kid to acknowledge their transness. On the other hand, it's also true that if you're telling three-year-olds that they can choose whether it be a boy, girl, neither, or something else entirely, and they decide they want to be a fish or, 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 or you know, some, some other, then you're going to introduce into the minds of children all sorts of, of, of options that, that will confuse and, and bewilder them and, and be difficult for them. So some of this is suggestible to some extent, and that's what, that's what concerns me with young children. They're very su suggestible. I mean, that's, that's why Catholics get them early. You know, we, get them, we indoctrinate them very young, but we don't do it via the public school system. We do allow parents to choose to do that. And I just think we want to be careful as not to make a mistake. Now, maybe you could argue this is the way things happen. They're pushing things too far. Things will come back. We will find some balance eventually. And I pray that is the case. And in fact, I think we're beginning to see that happen, that we are beginning to see medical specialists with people who pioneered these surgeries, really concerned because what you've had here is not just simply medical advances. You've had a medical advance fueled by an ideological revolution. Hmm. And, and that is what's dangerous. And so, for example, there are also, I mean, there are, they actually describe giving children who are gender dysphoric, con contemplating being trans, broad mental health support to explore other possibilities before they, they're calling that conversion therapy now and trying mm -hmm. to ban it. And that is my concern. As I said, well, with gay kids, you, didn't, like, yeah, you just let it be because we don't need medicalization. Well, um, there's something also kind of strangely homophobic about that. There was this piece that I just read in Newsweek by a young gay man who wrote, activists who favor medical interventions often ask these parents a morbid question. Would you rather have a trans daughter or a dead son? But he wrote, the real question should be, would you rather have a trans daughter or an effeminate gay son? 
I fear that for many, if they were honest, the answer would be the former. There's something weirdly homophobic, actually, inside this ideology. Yes, it, it's there, it lurks around, and suddenly, occasionally, it's very clear. So, for example, as a gay man, if I do not want to have sex with a trans person who has a vagina, I am, I'm exhibiting bigotry around general, genital preference. Now, the last time I was told I should try and have sex with someone with a vagina was by a priest. <laughs> and, and now I'm being told it by a queer activist. Notice they, they have an idea of how you should act, and it includes controlling your most intimate sexual choices. Now, sorry, but get out of my movement. The, the movement for gay rights is about also our ability to choose sex in whichever way we want. And for gay men to be called bigots by their own movement because we don't want to have sex with people with vaginas is an outrage. It's a fucking outrage. Um, we wouldn't accept this argument from the religious right, and we shouldn't accept it from the queer left. And our position is let everybody do what they want. It is not. It is not. And look, if a gay man can't say, I want to have sex with other gay men, I want to have sex with men, then what can he say? anymore and what has happened to us that this has become a contentious point it's more worrying for lesbians in a way because there's this again if you're taught that this is an evil patriarchy and you're you're a butch dyke you know the, the temptation to become a man seems to be quite uh powerful and there are elements of this which are really homophobic in a way and I don't think gay people should abandon our ownership of our own bodies in every single respect, and certainly not gay men. And I honestly believe that that's a pretty overwhelming majority of gay men will believe that. But again, what happens is small activist groups take over these organizations, and most gay men are funding them and just don't want to get into hassle with all this. They, they want to be on the right, quote, unquote, right side of history. Um, so in other words, an organization like the Human Rights Campaign, which once fought for gay marriage, once it won gay marriage, it didn't it didn't, you know, pack close up and up go home. Because <laughs> it had, yeah, it, it has its whatever it is, you know, tens of millions of dollars in budget and all of these employees. And it had to go sort of like, you know, a zombie to find a new cause. And oh, whoops, here's the new one. Using yeah, the same playbook. And also the astonishing amount of money from foundations from progressive groups that goes into this. I mean, I, I'm kind of astonished at how fascinated so many straight people are with advancing trans rights. It's 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 become almost, you know, like like a Ukraine flag on your uh, Twitter bio. It, it's a sort of demo, demonstration, either he, him, or your pronouns. It's, it's a kind of virtue signal that you are post-binary sex. Hmm. We can, you can be post-binary sex, except the world... It's not going to make sex anything other than binary. So good luck. One of the things that disturbs me about where I think the where we're starting to see the backlash to this is not in suggesting, hold on, slow down. Let's make sure kids have the right mental health support. It's punishing parents for making choices that certain states see as being terrible. Let me give you one example. In March, the Idaho House of Representatives 
pass legislation to make it a crime punishable by life in prison for a parent to seek out what has been called, obviously that we've disputed this, gender-affirming care for their transgender child. There was a directive in Texas from the governor there, Greg Abbott, who ordered child welfare authorities to conduct prompt and thorough investigation of any reported instances of minors undergoing elective procedures for gender transitioning as child abuse. So the thing that I find deeply screwed up here is on it, on the one hand, do I think 15-year-olds should be opting to get mastectomies? And no. On the other hand, do I think parents who have been told by a political establishment, by a culture, by their medical providers, that if they don't give this to their 15-year-old daughter, she might kill herself, that we would then punish those parents seems to me deeply, deeply retrograde. And I imagine we're going to be seeing more along these lines. I agree. I, I've opposed all these laws. I oppose the, the, the Florida Parental Rights Act because of its vagueness and its invitation to abuse. And just as people like Jen Psaki have never even contemplated, I think, fully the arguments against her position. So in these red states, galvanized by Fox News and by the internet, the notion that there is actually a possibility of a genuinely trans child and a parent doing their best is something they've also never really fully conceived of. I think the conservative position, my position, is the government should not be intervening drastically in these medical decisions. Should offer some broad parameters for care, and at that, at some point, let it go. I don't want government to be coming in and dictating what is taught in schools. I don't want government to be coming in, I mean, in a way that is obviously driven by populist instincts, not by a democratic process via school boards, via curriculum assessments and all the rest of it. And I don't want state governments banning healthcare or, or worse, applying criminal penalties for some people's genuine healthcare. Even though at the same time we see what I think is quite self-evident overuse of this stuff right now. Now, the way well, that in a liberal society that sorts itself out is lawsuits. And just as you could, the one way of pushing back against critical race theory is not banning it, but insofar as it ever violates the civil rights of someone, to prosecute it under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You can prosecute lawsuits against doctors who, who, who rushed a child into transition. And you can, and I have a feeling that we're going to see lots of them. And those lawsuits will eventually then trickle down and make the private sector much more careful about what they're doing. I do. But let's talk about school. Let's, yeah. Okay, sorry. I was going to say, let's talk about schools for a minute, because you say you don't want the government coming in saying what should be taught in schools, but the government always comes in and decides what's taught in schools. Public schools are run by the government. And you wrote in a recent in a recent essay, you kind of go through some of the deeply radical things that are being taught, not just in elite schools, not just in coastal schools, in public schools around the country to promote gender ideology and they're pretty wild. One of the examples you used was a video being taught in Seattle public schools. And in it, a man reads through this book. It's called Introducing Teddy. And the book is on a list, actually, of recommended books by the Human Rights Council and President Biden. Walk me through this book and the way that it exemplifies 
the problems that a lot of parents are sort of up in arms about right now and a lot of legislatures are starting to respond to? I think the core message of the book is that you can, and, and I quote this quote repeatedly, and, and to some extent, there's plenty in these books that's good, like accepting other people who are different, like someone comes into school one day and they're wearing a bow, not a bow tie. Yeah, don't bully that person. Let's accept that. Insofar as these books teach that kind of tolerance, I think they're great. They're kind of generic and Sesame Streety and all the rest of it, but fine. But insofar as they're telling children that you can choose to be a boy or a girl or both or neither or something else entirely, and I'm quoting that verbatim, that's incredibly weird for a child to understand. When you're told that boys can have periods and girls can have willies, as they are being taught in England, for example, under the, the there, then that's also incredibly weird and freaky and, and disturbing for kids. And there's a point. Of I mean, in, can, in kinder in kindergarten, yes, three years, in three Seattle, years old. Yes. Yeah, they're they're being taught that gender is a person's feeling about being a boy or a girl, neither both or another gender or somewhere in between. I'm sorry. Why does a five year old need to be taught that? And why? You know, as someone who would acknowledge that what's taught in schools is up to the government, why shouldn't they oppose that kind of thing? I think they should. So oppose I'm, it. I, I'm trying to understand, because on the one hand, you're saying what's being taught is kind of crazy and maybe actually deeply damaging and psychologically confusing. But on the other hand, you're saying the measures to try and stop it are illiberal. Now, Maybe the answer is we just need a, a more clearly written bill, as in the case of Florida. I think but I'm wondering what, where you come down on that. I think structurally, this is the problem we have. We have an educational establishment because we have an elite that is completely captive to a certain ideology that is really not held by the vast majority of ordinary citizens. They control the institutions to such an extent that they have determined these things in curricula and so on. No one bothers to look at this stuff. And parents only found out about it partly during the pandemic and because some of the stuff has leaked and so on. So what do you do when the entire, when in fact there isn't, the democratic process is kind of broken down, when this stuff is just being imposed in ways that you never, there wasn't a debate about this. When did we, when did we have a legislative discussion about whether we are teaching three-year-olds, whether they're boys or girls or not? When was that actually done? When was the school board meeting about that? A lot of this stuff didn't happen. And now it's being flushed out by school board meetings and people are having input into these things. And you're right. Public school curriculum are political things. That I, 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 what I don't like is governments jumping in and picking and choosing books. And I just don't like that abandonment of econ academic freedom. At the same time, I also worry about how these institutions and unions have been captured by certain ideologies you can't get rid of. This is the right-wing argument that says, essentially, we're run by an administrative state. It doesn't matter who you put in, this will happen. Like in Britain, the civil service under a Tory government is putting critical race theory, making it mandatory for every single person to be employed by the British government. Under the Tories. Why? Because it's just this, 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 this educational elite class that determines everything quietly and imposes it on your kids is, is, is at work. And they because they're increasingly bubbled and, and, and not listening to most people, don't even realize that they're completely out of step. And they look at you, why are you worried about this? What are you? And you're like, because most normie people would think this is fucking bonkers. And it is, to be honest with you, it is completely inappropriate for kids. And, and you'll notice in most of the mainstream coverage of this, 
they never actually include the content. They don't tell you what people are objecting to. So you get this confusion. They're just all a bunch of bigots. Like that whole Taylor Lorenz thing, or however you pronounce the name, on uh, Lives of TikTok. I mean, they didn't produce a single piece of quote or video that you could see what Libs of TikTok was putting out there. And Libs of TikTok but, is not picking, obviously, but nonetheless, there are plenty of nuts out there in the field of, of, of high school and primary school education. It seems to attract them in some ways. And I don't think that's appropriate. I just don't know. Well, and, and, but I think most normal voters, if they heard that their child in kindergarten was being told that they might not be a boy or a girl. And if they feel a little boyish one day, maybe they're actually trans. I think most people would say that is crazy. And I absolutely would support a law getting that out of my kid's school. Well, that's why it passed in Florida. That's why these things are being passed elsewhere. That's why the Democrats will not address the substance of it. They will just talk about this in terms of right-wing reaction and anti-gay stuff and all the rest of it. They'll just send out tribal signals without actually engaging the substance. We don't have to teach kids about this at all. Let them be. Teach them fucking colors and shapes and, and math, you know, and, and, and lead, let this be. And this is quite esoteric. It isn't even birds and bees. This is before they ever find out our reproductive strategies as a species. Right. They're being told they can invent whether they're a girl or a boy. I just so find it bewildering. So when the Florida law comes out, and you know, I think the most controversial section is the following line, classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade three or in a manner that's not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. I think most parents would hear that and say, duh, how <laughs> yes. is that not already the law? Why would there ever be discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity for anyone below third grade or maybe maybe anyone below sixth grade? But you oppose the law. So explain to us why. Well, I oppose it not because I don't agree with you on that basic issue, but because the enforcement mechanism is so difficult. In other words, you're, you're inviting lawsuits against teachers by parents. So it opens it up to a kind of lawsuit mayhem. And also because it leaves vague what is age appropriate and age inappropriate. And because even though it says in the law instruction, it says in the preamble discussion. Anyway, I, 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 I thought there was too much vagueness in this, too much sort of vigilante justice elements of it. But I don't object to a legislature passing a bill that says such a blatantly obvious thing. And I think the key in debating this is to focus on that. That's the winning argument. Instead, these people go to, they're grooming them. They want to have sex and they want to rape them. No, you don't have to go there at all. You can just make your strongest argument on the text of the law, insist that's all you ever want to do, and let it go. So, Unfortunately, that is not, we don't have a place in America where that can happen right now. But with any luck, we can create a space where that can be the case and, and resist some of this. But, you know, there's a lot of money fueling this polarization. And there's a lot of gay people who are just very easily tribalized about this. And some of the ugliness coming at us is very reminiscent of the ugliness that we've seen before 
And so there is a there's a tendency, of course, to gather together and defend us, and to and to give up on the 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 the, the actual difficult argument, which is the centrist argument, and instead just rely upon tribal stigmatization of the other. And the Democrats want this tribal stigmatization; they're not interested. In, and to some extent, I fear DeSantis wants the same thing. So you're saying that you know, fearing facing a right that is now bringing up language like grooming and predation and a kind of sexual panic that a lot of gay people who are sort of in the center on these issues and are totally obviously oppose that kind of language and yet also oppose gender ideology, especially in public schools and especially the medicalization of kids, will find themselves sort of running leftward in reaction to what's happening on the right. Yeah, this is the horrible ratchet dynamic. I'm afraid. And this is, goes for a whole Tell me what you mean by the ratchet. What does the ratchet dynamic mean? That through the existing sort of establishment, whether that be educational, political, or whatever, certain ideas are introduced without much democratic discussion. They ratchet, they push things quite radically to the left. The minute there is a response to that, it is redescribed as a reactionary Trumpist racist, white supremacist, homophobic movement, which then leads people to, to oppose it. So you, 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 you never get into the actual details of the question or the intricacies of the debate. It tribalizes instantly. And the truth is that I think gay people are very easily tribalized. We have a lot of trauma, collectively and individually. And when we hear or see members of the religious right rejoicing and calling us pedophiles, we're going to have a very powerful response that may not actually be intellectually the most coherent that we might have. And that's that's a problem. How do you respond to the argument, and I, I'm, I get this a lot, of, Sully, you have such a platform, you're such an important voice for gay people, you know, and this is what people say to me. They'll say, you know, you have an opportunity to focus on X, Y, and Z. And instead, what you're doing by criticizing gender ideology is not just putting a target on the back of a vulnerable population. You're actually giving sucker and fodder to people on the right who oppose you, who wish you never got the rights that you have. Don't you see that you are fueling the backlash yourself? How do you respond to that? I'm asking you that both as because I'm curious, but also as a kind of therapeutic question for myself. You respond by saying that's a bit of a cheap shot, first of all. <laughs> Secondly, you say, uh, I support every gay right imaginable. I support every trans right within the civil rights context imaginable. I have some differences with you on the question of biological sex and to some extent, the treatment of children. If you want to call me a traitor, a collaborator, whatever you want, then you're going to be able to call me that. I had people scream collaborator at me in gay bars in the 90s. I had drinks thrown at me because I opposed outing in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. Because I said, even though times are this bad, we do not give up on civilized behavior. We do not punish people for being gay, whatever their viewpoints are. Now, that was regarded as treason. Supporting marriage equality was also regarded as treason. In the long run, I think you can say, no, I think that I was right about those two things. And in the emotions of the moment, certain tribal instincts took over. But 
I am coming from a place of principle and consistency. And there is nothing that I support for gay people that I do not equally support for trans people. Nothing. And I feel this way also when, I, when I'm, I'm asked about questions about whether I believe in immigration control or border security or reducing illegal immigration. They say, you just want to pull, this is the, this is the, the language, pull the, pull the drawbridge up after you, right? Fuck everybody else who came after you. You exactly. just got yours. You got yours. Right. Now you're sitting pretty. And I'm like, well, no, I got mine and I got yours too. And I got yours today. And we disagree about something other than this. And, and we can have a good faith disagreement about this without me calling you a traitor and without you calling me one. Now, that's never going to happen in reality. I mean, it does more than you think, quietly. The people are listening and are quietly thinking, eh, he has a point, I can see that. Oh, thinking about it, that's, that's, that's what you aim for. And publicly, you're going to be called, as I was, an antichrist. You've been, I've been called, you wouldn't believe what I've been called. I mean, and the, that is, certainly in the 90s, it was much more explicable than today. And that's the one thing I would say, too, in terms of perspective. I see rates of depression and mental health disturbance among gay teens reporting incredibly high levels of stress. I'm told we're under unprecedented assault. I'm just like, please have some perspective. Try being a gay person 10, 15, 20 years ago. You are living in paradise compared to what we lived through. And we, we didn't complain. We got on with our lives. We changed things, but we weren't sitting here whining. And there's a certain amount of this that can be self-generated. If you want to live in a world in which you are constantly oppressed, you can construct the world around you in your imagination so that's true. You can notice mm -hmm. every slight. You can look at everyone looks the other way. You can, you can be completely paranoid about people's metaphors, the words they use, all the rest of it. Or you can make a choice. I don't give a shit about that. I'm gonna live my life. I'm fine. And what we have failed to do, and this, this is not just true about gay youth, but regular youth, is to teach, to teach a principle of resilience, of strength, of power. ACT UP is called AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. What we had in the 80s and 90s was a sense of empowerment on our own behalf, which did not seek mercy, which didn't seek pity, which sought action, which sought change, and was incredibly clear about it. The idea that we did all this, we, we fought for all this, for gay kids today to be more depressed than ever just strikes me as just terribly sad. And again, I'd say, try being a gay kid in Pakistan. Try being a gay kid under the Palestinian authorities. Try being a gay kid in Zambia. Just get a fucking grip and get some perspective. And the other thing about getting too radical over here, playing all this stuff, we, we behave as if this is completely our own business. When we push the envelope on so many things, when we start challenging very basic concepts of gender and sex. Would well, you know who it's not helping? It's not helping gay people in Eastern Europe. It's not helping gay people in Russia. It's not helping gay people in the Middle East. It is, in fact, fueling a wave of homophobia, which is helping legitimize those authoritarian regimes and hurt yes. gay people everywhere. And we must stop playing into Vladimir Putin's hands. And, well, and we must stop I, allowing the extremes to define us. 
when they do not define us. The most important thing I learned as a gay man when I first came out was when I was watching the gay bar was, Jesus Christ, these people are nothing like I was told. This is nothing like I was warned about. There is nothing weird or strange or quote-unquote queer about any of this. These are human beings, regular people who live their lives and want to have their life. And when you actually gave a message that allowed that to be empowered, it worked brilliantly. And now they want to turn every gay person into a queer person. These, these, the, the use of that word, again... Well, queer think, just means... <laughs> queer now just means straight, but politically left. Well, yeah, I'm except talking. it also means gay. And, we, and when, you, when, you get a, when you get these polls that say 40% of LGBTQIA plus people believe such a thing, you're like, well, who are they talking about? And when you find well, out I 40% think... of them are straight and married, you're just like, well, you know. But the point about using the word queer, which to men of my generation is actually, talk about a trigger word. It's the last word you heard before you were punched in the face. It is it's used by people all the time. Now, a small group of lefties tried to own it in the 80s and 90s, that queer nation. And most of us didn't adapt it in that way. Now it is imposed on us, imposed on us by the New York Times in a news article calling us queer. And, you know, I hear that. And again, just by their own principles. Aren't you supposed to be the people that are most leery of triggering anyone? And here you are using a very, very toxic word to define all gay people. And you don't give a fuck. Why? Because you're not actually interested in taking care. You're interested in controlling people. You're interested in naming them and defining them against their will and against their reality. And that's why I object to it. One of the reasons that I've personally felt so passionately about opposing this illiberal ideology, which goes by many names, we've been talking about the gender aspect of it during this conversation, but it's called wokeness or successor ideology. I don't really care what we call it, is is not just because I oppose it on its own merits or demerits. It's because I deeply fear the backlash that I believe will come in response to it. Because anyone who knows anything about history, think obviously about Germany in the 1920s, but there are other examples, knows that when a society becomes crazily decadent, as I think ours is, that the thing that comes to challenge it is not liberalism. It's deeply retrograde and repressive. And you know, given the choice between left-wing extremism and right-wing extremism, many people choose the right. And there's this really amazing quote from Camille Paglia, who says, people who live in such decadent times feel they're very sophisticated, they're very cosmopolitan. But in truth, they're evidence of a civilization that no longer believes in itself. And on the edges of that civilization, she says, are people who still believe in heroic masculinity. And she doesn't mean that in a laudatory way. She means that in a real, real rough way. So one of the reasons that I have felt the need, even though I'm accused of fueling the backlash myself, to push back against the illiberal left is because I believe that its excesses are going to give rise to something very, very scary on the right. Like when things become chaotic and structureless and words have no meaning and there are no differences between men and women, 
people react by going extremely hardcore in the other direction, like the violent imposition of rules and structure and hierarchy at all costs. And I worry that that's where we could be going. Yes, uh, that has often been a worry. And what frustrates me most is simply the refusal to even acknowledge that that could be a factor. So, in fact, they, it's always treated as if the right-wing reaction is out of any context, that we've done nothing to deserve this, nothing to provoke this. I don't know what they're talking about. What are you, critical race theory in high school? It's completely untrue, the New York Times says, even as it pushes its own critical race theory project into high schools around the country. They don't acknowledge that they have played a role in creating Trump. They've played a role in creating Le Pen and Zemmour. They've played a role in creating very, some very ugly strains of illiberal conservatism. And it's happening here. You can see it with DeSantis. You can see it with Chris Rufo, who I think did important work and has done important work, and I'm grateful for him. But the way he thrills to the exercise of raw power gets me a little nervous, to say the least. And if it's a contest purely for power, if truth is out the window, there's no reason to be asserted, then the people who are better at enforcing their physical power will tend to win. And they tend the to be reason, on the far the right. Reason I, but the reason I think that Chris Rufo, who has done amazing work exposing what's going on, let's say, in schools and corporations, they'll basically say, you know what, Sully, in a perfect world, we would respond to the excesses of the left with reason, with common sense, with deliberation. But all they know is power. All they force on us is power. They say we're barbarians. They say we're, you know, bigots, racists. They haven't hesitated to call us Nazis for believing in the right to free speech. So if that's the language they understand, that's the language we're going to speak to them in. And I understand how they get there. I do, too. And I and I sympathize with it. My concern is that once you adopt those tools, you never have recourse to any others, that it becomes a pure war. It becomes mere battle for power. And it becomes a, a, a crusade for no compromise ever. And it becomes a, a crusade for controlling other people and imposing your view of the world on them. And you enter that cycle, you end in a, it's, it's a civil war cycle. It's not a liberal democracy cycle. And one of the reasons when I said I thought Trump was and would be an extinction level event for liberal democracy, and people didn't realize what, liberal democracy, I meant precisely this that will become a war against each other. This will be about imposing power from one side to the other. And we are quite evenly balanced as a country, which means an, an incredibly fruitless, constant battle with individual people and vulnerable people as victims of it, an incoherent public policy, the inability to pass anything constructive that we can agree on. And this is my concern. I, look. I, 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 I'm in agony about this. I really want to prevent this stuff. But I also have to, you have to at some point make a decision. Am I, am I a classical liberal or am I not? Am I going to sustain the principles of civil discourse, compromise, an impartial state, an attempt to construct a, an open public square which can be pluralist, without being oppressive. And those, I, those are principles I come back to, I, I believe in, and I believe the minute I throw them away, I look around, I got nothing left to defend myself against people with more power 
than me, and it seems to me that minorities in particular should be incredibly careful about empowering authoritarian because we're the first on the chopping block. So, for example, when gay people of all people start wanting to constrain freedom of speech, I feel like saying, do you understand what you're doing? That for a long time, that was the only freedom you had. For a long time, that was the only way to express your opinion. That was the freedom that got you your freedoms. Yes. It was the, it was the premise for everything that followed. We couldn't even talk to each other without it. But we could publish magazines in the most homophobic country on earth in the 1950s, and we could, we could still communicate. And that was what allowed us to sustain this over time. We can't abandon our principles the minute one side turns illiberal. That, that's just a recipe for all of us going down the drain. And that means just a certain amount of discipline, patience, balancing out power so that you don't adopt one tribe or the other. You pit them against each other and attempt to get some middling path. It has not been easy. It has been and, awful and for lon- all of us. And loneliness. Loneliness in a good way, though, Barry. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Barry. You should be lonely if you're a public intellectual. That's your job. Stop whining about it. <laughs> I mean, this is who we're supposed to be. When I look back at the people I admire, and I'm not putting myself in that, this category, when I look at someone like Orwell, who couldn't get 1984 published, who was despised by every other writer in England, well, at least a huge number of them, who, betray, who, was, who the left hated. If I look at people like Raymond Aron, people who kept in the middle of the, in the 60s, in the middle of 68, still refused to go left or right, still said, I'm sticking to the liberal center. Now, who do we read now? I read him more than Sartre, and I read him more than Foucault, and remind people that Foucault, the person on whom you're basing your entire philosophy, supported the Iranian revolution, supported the most extensive repression of sexual freedom in modern times, a lost soul, a brilliant man, and certainly worth reading, but utterly lost because once you've given up, when everything is power and nothing is truth, you have nowhere to go but power. You have nowhere to go but being in the sadomasochistic room at, at, the, at the, the mine shaft. I mean, that's where it ends up. And the simile when you do that, you also, and this is where there is some argument, If you get rid of all truth, if you get rid of all standards, if you dismantle everything, subvert everything, you will end up violating children. And Mm -hmm. there, it it is true that that boundary, which is an important, vital one for our civilization and for human decency, is one that these people historically have denied. Just as they've denied the differences between men and women. These These are disturbed people. We have a civilization that has been built on a much better foundation than this sort of nihilism. And we should be able to defend it without becoming the monster we're defeating or trying to defeat. I mean, that's, I know it sounds a cliche, but you can't let their logic get a hold of your mind because then all you are is in a war. And I don't want to be in a war. I want to be in a free society. And I want to be in a free society where we can talk to each other and argue with each other ferociously if necessary, but get a beer afterwards. That's the world I want to live in. And you can't get there unless you practice it now. And it's infectious. (laughs) Sully, thank you for everything you're doing to model that kind of behavior. There's so much else I want to talk to you about. Substack, for one. Israel, for another. Speaking of ferocious disagreements. We do have Um, a lot to talk about. 
But we'll have to save that for another time. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Barry, I, I know we've been secretly plotting for years now, as people on Twitter seem to think. But no, I mean, I just to, just to be all mushy, uh, thank you for having the balls not to cave and to stand up to horrible bullying, really horrible bullying. And I love you for it. And I love your spirit. And I love your, your wife too. And I, I really look forward to you being a mom. A mother. And, yeah. and that will be a wonderful moment. I hope to see you soon again. And keep it up. And, you know, we're going to do fine. We're doing okay, right? I mean, I, we get great listeners to this. I have great response to my readers. I'm doing, I love what I'm doing. And let's, let's be lonely and let's have fun and let's be principled and let's be, lo- let's be remembered as lonely figures. <laughs> lonely, but hopefully getting a drink together this summer in Provincetown. Andrew Sullivan, thank you so much. You bet, Barry. Love you. Love you too.